Our scripture reading is from Acts 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to, to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The word of God for the people of God.
please open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. If you're new or visiting, um, we are continuing in a series called What is the Mission of the Church? We feel like it is really important here at Flat Rock to discuss why it is we're doing what we're doing. Why do we exist here in Nashville, in this neighborhood, in this school, in this particular time of, of history? Uh, what is God asking us to commit ourselves to as a church? And we have said that we are committed to making disciples, to being and making disciples for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. And we're saying that because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. And we're seeing the church as it's growing, the New Testament church here, uh, growing like wildfire as disciples are being made by the thousands as God is um, essentially equipping the ranks of the church to go out throughout the ends of the world as he had desired the church and the gospel to go. And we've been following Paul, a new convert to the faith, well, within a decade, I guess he's been training, but here he's out actually on the field doing work, taking the gospel, especially to unreached people groups. His his job and task by God is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to essentially those who've, who've never heard of Christianity. And this week we get to the first place where he's not sharing first and foremost with the Jews, but with people that have no idea what Christianity is. They've never even heard of it. And they encounter this really unique situation that I think teaches us a lot about what we must confront and overcome in our hearts, in every single human heart, in order for them to, for, in order for people to receive the gospel. And the challenge for you this morning is to ask yourself, have I confronted this barrier in my own heart? And, or do I know anyone who needs to have this barrier overcome? Let's pray. Father, do you thank you for uh, the challenge of this word, Lord, the way that it, it just really marinated in my heart this week and challenged me to confront my own barriers and obstacles. Uh, but Lord, I thank you that um, it is not of me alone to overcome, that there is a power and a victory and a source of life beyond anything that I could ever drum up myself. I pray that you show us that hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, uh, Daniel Nealon, who preaches for me every fifth week here, and Wim, one of your elders, we went down to General Assembly in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, this is the basically the national gathering of all of the PCA churches, Presbyterian Church in America, that's our denomination. The gathering of all these churches together for a week to go to seminars, to vote on different things, to take action about different governmental issues that need to be taken care of, and it's um, also a time to just see old friends, and for me, it's more of a reunion than anything else, um, and it was really good to be with when ruling elders typically do not go to this event um, just because of time and schedule, and so to have one there our first year of being able to go is pretty sweet, and then Daniel was with us, and while we were down there, um, we were, you know, obviously hanging out a lot, and Daniel Nealon told me about a Netflix documentary. I guess he loves Netflix documentaries. I know you might, too. Uh, he told me about one in particular called Blackfish. I don't know if you all have seen this documentary. If you have, raise your hand. Yeah, so you know who, who, I'm, who I'm, what I'm talking about here. Well, I, I watched it kind of on fast forward because I wanted to get some of the, the details of it. But as I was watching it, 
I wasn't expecting it to be the opening illustration for my sermon, but as I watched it, I saw one incident that stuck out in particular, and the whole documentary is kind of leading to one or two just major incidents, and because it's, it's talking about the danger of keeping whales in captivity in SeaWorld and like all the, the dangers that can come from that, um, and it's essentially saying you know, that that's wrong and that uh, you know, we shouldn't do that, and, and they, they give these instances of, of ways in which SeaWorld is kind of kept it under wraps about the different uh, tragedies that have happened because these whales, you know, they misbehave because they've been treated so poorly. Um, at least that's how I understood it. Did you know, is that how you received it, Bo? Is it the same? Is that the concept? Yes. That's right. And there's one incident that on November 29, 2006, a guy named Ken Peters, one of the trainers who's very well trained, he was going to perform the routine rocket hop. I don't know if you all have been to SeaWorld and seen the rocket hop. Um, I didn't know what a rocket hop was, but it's when the diver goes down with the whale and basically hugs its nose. The whale shoots up to the surface as fast as it can and just throws the trainer as far as he can throw him as high in the air, and then he dives in the water and does a flip or something like that. Essentially, it's kind of like a, a, a parent throwing their child through the water uh, like on steroids. And so um, he was getting ready to perform the routine rocket hop, with this 5,000-pound killer whale in front of thousands of spectators. It's a routine he'd done hundreds of times, but this time he did, the things didn't work out quite like he expected. As the whale decided, instead of, of, of allowing him to kind of just grab on, he, he actually bites his foot. And he'd never done this before. And he grabs his foot, and this is all on video. It's amazing. He, he bites his foot. He takes him immediately down to the bottom. It's like 50-foot pool, 100-foot pool, something crazy. Um, he takes him down to the bottom, then he shoots him back up, gets his head out, gets some air, takes him back down to the bottom, takes him back up, and then he would take him down to the bottom sometimes for a minute or a minute and a half. But fortunately, the trainer was very well trained, and he, the most amazing thing about the whole, the whole deal is he's totally calm. He knows how to hold his breath for a minute or a minute and a half, and really, he, he has a lot of scuba diving experience, I guess. And he can go to these depths, and he knows how to breathe and all this stuff. And you even see him at one point when the whale brings him up to the surface, he's just like petting and caressing the whale to try to calm the whale down. At one point, the whale lets go of one leg only to grab the other one and continues the repeated cycle. And finally, he lets him go, and then he swims to the edge of the pool into safety, spoiler alert. Um, but it's, it's, it's a remarkable scene to watch. Now, how does that relate to Acts chapter 14? That is a good question. Um, <laughs> One of the purposes, work with me here, one of the purposes of Luke writing Acts is to convey to Christians how difficult our calling to be salt and light in the world is. It's about the danger facing us, the apostles, the disciples, at every turn, and how that danger becomes their routine. Because we've seen it at every turn that they make. One they would be coached on and warned about by Jesus himself, then trained in as they gathered the experience, taking the gospel into these unreached places. Their calm and collective demeanors are remarkable in this story in particular. They confront a whale of a situation, if you will, uh, for the first time, and they handle it flawlessly as their lives are at stake. Jesus did say that the world would hate them, that the gospel would turn the world against them, mother against daughter, father against son, brother against brother, friend against friend. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. I have said these things to keep you from falling away. So if you know what to expect going into the unknown, you're much more prepared to deal with things when they get hard or go south. A lot of us are not willing to go to the unreached people or our neighbors who have not heard the gospel or people who have been unchurched or dechurched because we're not well-trained and because we're fearful. We're fearful of the unexpected. And because we don't know what to expect, we just don't say anything. It's just easier that way. Some of us even feel like if we were to say something, our very lives might be at stake in the sense that it would make us so uncomfortable that we would, we would feel like just hiding and going into a hole for not having the right answers to people's questions or not knowing how to confront the issues that they're dealing with. It feels like a killer whale of a situation to us that we must overcome. What do we do with that? I think our, in our calling to minister to non-believers in word and in deed, do we know what to expect? Do we know what we must confront in every heart? You know, Paul had been on the other side of the gospel and his rejection of it. He knew what this talk of Jesus was, would incite in people because it, it incited it in him as he killed people and tracked people down and put them in the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. He knew what the name of Jesus could do. So here we have this interesting situation that Paul and Barnabas walk into in this town called Lystra. First time we see Christians speaking to polytheists, people who believe in multiple gods. And so far we've seen Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel, Jews and Gentiles who've heard about Jesus, but here they encounter people who have no idea what it is. And this passage, I think, teaches us two really important things about the nature of discipleship, or how to do discipleship. One, the nature of idolatry. And two, how to confront it. Let's look at the nature of idolatry and what we can learn about it. So Paul and Barnabas arrive in the city called Lystra. I realize I'm kind of skipping over the first part of this and the, and the last part and really focusing in on the middle of chapter 14. Excuse me for that. Um, but they, they, they've been to this city called Iconium. They were abused. They were mistreated. They tried to stone Paul, Peter and Barnabas and their companions, but they, they flee 20 miles south to this city called Lystra in a country called Anatolia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And in Lystra, there, it's interesting because there's no synagogue. And as we've seen, their routine is go to the synagogue first, appeal to the Jews with what they know, with the Old Testament, the scriptures that they're familiar with, and then talk to them about the nature of grace and, and how we're not saved by our works of the law, but we're saved by grace. And so that's not going to work here. And like really wise disciples that they are, they know to contextualize their message. They know to consider who it is that they're talking to. It's, it's what we called last week, the big word for it is presuppositionalism. They care about their stories. They don't just have a shtick that they go to into each town with. And then they do their little song and dance and then they leave. They're caring about these people's stories. They're caring about how the gospel applies to their stories. And then they apply it in its own unique way. And so as they show up, a miracle is about to take place, and we see these miracles happen. They're providential, okay? So God has, has put this crippled man in this place and time for a very specific reason. It's to aid the spread of the gospel. So as they're walking into town, they, God could have done this without the aid of this miracle, but it really helps, and it really instills confidence in Peter and Barnabas and their followers, but also it instills awe in the people as they see the authority that they have. As this man crippled from birth, He's standing there, says Peter sees him, he looks intently at him. Now you have to imagine, again, 
like Jesus, they're passing probably lots of crippled people. This is probably not the only person with a disability in the town or someone that they've encountered before. But for some reason, this man, they, they see him, and Peter decides this man needs to be healed. He's, in, he's, he's intent on listening to the guidance of the Spirit. And you'll notice, I don't know, you may not notice, but I noticed, this miracle is just like the one Peter performed in Acts chapter 3. Now, if whoever Luke wrote this, this, this uh, testimony of the Acts of the Apostles 2 was probably reading it, and it's to the man named Theophilus, and there's a lot of debate on who that was and all this stuff, but whoever was reading this is probably reading it and thinking, I already, I've already heard this story. Is this just lazy writing? Like, is he just making this another one up again? But the reason that this miracle is included is because Luke wants to highlight that Paul and Barnabas are standing in the temple of paganism instead of Judaism, and yet the same power of God was present in Peter's healing just as it is here. That is a powerful statement that God's gospel is for both Jew and Gentile alike in the same amount of power. God addresses the same basic needs for all different kinds of people. The miracle serves for Paul to preach the gospel to the crowds just as it did for Peter, and it's providentially placed here so that he can have the crowd's attention and tell them the good news of the gospel and tell them about their own crippled hearts crippled from birth, and how by the power of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, they too can have their hearts leap for joy for the first time. And what does it say that people do in response to this miracle? They assume, as is understandable, that they're Zeus and Hermes, that they're gods themselves. And they have this really interesting interaction where the people decide, okay, They're gods. They have this great kind of power. We live in fear of the gods and what they can do to us. What do we need to do to appease these two men so they don't harm us? Do you know how irrational that is? They just healed a man and gave him the ability to walk. He never walked in his life. And they're fearful that they might do something awful to them. Why is that? Well, there is a story, a legend called, uh, it's Ovid's story called Metamorphosis, that told the story of Zeus and Hermes visiting Lystra a long time ago, going door to door to find a place to stay, and no one would let them in except for this man named Philemon and his wife. They let him in, they spend the night, the next morning they take him up to the top of a mountain, they flood the whole city, and then they turn Philemon and his wife's house into gold. And basically the moral of the story is if you don't appease the gods and do what they ask you to do and you're not hospitable to them, then they will destroy you. So if this is Zeus and Hermes, come back to Lystra to exact revenge, then we better go get the fattened calf. And that's exactly what they do. And another interesting thing is they're not speaking Greek. So they're speaking a language, uh, uh, Lystrician or something, some language, um, Yes, Listerine maybe? I don't know. Um, wow, that was good. Um, they're speaking a language that they don't understand. And so Paul, you can imagine Paul and Barnabas are witnessing this whole scene like, what do they think is going on? Why, are they, why is there such a ruckus? Where are they going? And as they're walking back down the street, they see the priest coming with the fatted calf. He's holding this fatted calf, and he's ready to make a sacrifice to it. And what they had done is they attributed divinity to people that didn't qualify. So, interestingly, in a country where no one was told about the true God, they still believed in a God or gods. 
And when they witnessed something amazing they couldn't comprehend, they did what they were created to do, which is give worth to the source of the miracle. It shows that there's a sense in every human heart for God. And Paul's picking up on this. Paul recognizes that. Look, they believe in a God. They just got the wrong God. We've got to reorient these people to the truth. The Bible tells us the law of God is written on our hearts. The problem here is that only, they only know how to relate to a divine being through fear. They have no idea that the true God has come in love. And that's because their biggest barrier is our biggest barrier. Their hearts are idol factories. The sin behind every sin is our idolatry. That's why the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the rest of the commandments talk about the things that make you put other gods before the real God. To keep you from doing the first and most primary thing that we're naturally inclined to do, which is want to either be gods ourselves or worship the false gods. That's how Satan got Eve to eat the apple. He said, does God really love you? Don't you want to be the one who's in control and calls the shots around here? You don't want to bend to his commandments to not eat of the tree. Do what you want and be free. That was the original temptation, and the temptation started with the doubt of God's word and its truth, and she followed her own idol, herself, the idol of control, the idol of power. We easily make idols of anything other than God. And like the story of the monkeys that I like to use where they hunted monkeys in India, and the way they hunted them is they built a little cage and they put a little piece of food in one little hole where they could put their fist through and grab onto the piece of cheese or whatever it was. Those monkeys wanted that food so bad that they would hold on to it and not let go until they could capture them and they would kill them. They would hold on to it long enough to the point of death. And while we sit here and hear that and we say, silly little monkeys... We're the silly little monkeys. Because you grab onto something and you hold on to it until the point of death. And it costs us everything. To make an idol out of something is to give it the worth that God is due alone. It's to worship something as if it's the source of your life. So we make idols out of pleasure. These are our modern idols. Comfort, safety, money, achievement, conquest, possessions. Tim Keller has a great book called Counterfeit Gods. If you've never read it, it's a short little book. Highly recommend it. It'd be a great one to read in between this week and next week. When you sacrifice to these gods, you worship them. And what, the Bible teaches that whatever we worship other than God, it's not, it won't work. Now, here's an interesting thing. How do you identify your idols? And Tim Keller has some great advice on this. Your idols are whatever you fantasize about, daydream about, whatever gets that dopamine hit in your brain so that you can fall asleep at night. Your idol is probably also what you're most insecure about. For these people, when their idol is confronted, when it's called out, how do they respond? In love? No. They want to kill them. It's their deepest insecurity. They don't know the truth, and they're confused, and they're ignorant. These aren't educated people. You know, they've been speaking to the Jews and these highly educated Pharisees and Sadducees and even Greeks, and this is, this is the poor blue-collar people. Keller from Counterfeit Gods on Idolatry says this, when human beings try to become more than human beings 
to be as gods or to worship false gods, they actually fall to become lower than human beings. It actually dehumanizes us to worship anything other than God. Because you know why? Because it just makes you an impulsive thing like a dog chasing a bone, like a little monkey grabbing a piece of cheese. It makes you less than human because it causes you to chase after something that was never meant to fill the human heart. So in other words, when we worship something false, we become impulsive and irrational in our allegiance to it. We can make idols out of anything, even family, church, religion, politics, relationships, achievement. And we, when we think we need to, to be right about those things, maybe it's your political view, or in possession of them for life to work out for you, then you have your own idol. And some of us have multiple idols. I know this week, I was searching the elevator of my heart for my idols and where all they lie. And sometimes I'm just trying to get to the first monster idol just to get to the smaller ones or even larger ones. This is a process for us to understand and identify what our idols is and then what we do with them. Paul in Romans 1 sheds light on why people naturally do this. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. So you're thinking to yourself, well, these people didn't have a chance. They've never heard of Christianity. Have mercy. Don't go share the gospel with them. You're just endangering their lives. Just stay quiet, Paul. Don't go anywhere else. Well, that's in total contradiction to the nature of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to take the gospel out into the ends of the world to those who've never heard it. You're not endangering their lives. You're giving them the truth that will save their lives. So the person who's never heard the gospel for it is not by default saved, just because they never had a chance. That argument doesn't fly. Jesus says he will come back when every soul at the end of the globe is saved. When every person he desires to save is rescued. If you have that view that these people somehow deserve salvation just because they've never heard of it, you have a really miss, a really, um, you have a bad understanding of sin. I'll just put it that way. You don't understand the depravity of the human heart and how sinful we truly are. That we are natural idol makers. Whether we've heard of Jesus or not, this is what we do. Because we were made to worship the true God. And we need to know who he is. And it's, he's not just revealed to us in a saving way through his creation, although that's what Paul uh, alludes to here, which is really brilliant. We're saved by the revelation of the word of truth, of the gospel being told to us, of what Jesus has done for us, of his life and death and resurrection. And I love, you know, they tear their clothes here when they see that they're worshiping them as gods because it, the tearing of clothes was this, basically this public display of grief or mourning. And so basically they're saying, this is so grievous to us. This is so unnatural and awful. I guess it actually is natural. This is so awful that... It, it makes them nauseated. It makes them sick. They do not want to be worshipped as God. So even though they have this power and authority, it's pretty remarkable, and they, they're healing people, and then they're inciting an entire town, and you can imagine the power grab that might have been for most people. They're not thinking, well, this feels pretty good. Let's just let them carry on a little bit. Maybe just five minutes of worship. Maybe I'll just eat a little bit of the fatted calf. Um, they don't want to have anything to do with it because they know the true God. 
And they know that there's only one God who deserves all the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory. No matter what they've done, no matter what they've achieved, their achievement is not their idol. So for many of us in this room, you live for achievement. I mean, that's the American way. You just look at all your possessions and all the things you have, and you know you can stand before God one day and say, look, isn't this enough? It doesn't matter. It's do you have faith in the one true God and do you receive his love by grace and not by your own um, attainment? You know, it shows us that the nature of idolatry is all superstition. It's superstition that leads to fear. Their obedience to their God is only in times of trouble and out of fear of not being destroyed. You know, I think this is one reason we live in such constant anxiety in our culture. Because we live in fear of our idols. We live in fear that they're not going to give us what we want them to give. That the bank account and the job and the kids and the house and that new car, Mike of the truck's not going to do it for you, man. I'm sorry, dude. It's an awesome car. It won't satisfy. I love Micah's truck. By the way, he's the guy with the truck. So, um, no, uh, yeah, we, these things that we think are going to satisfy, then we live in fear that they're not going to. And so we're trying to keep them up, and we want to keep our cars clean and nice and neat and no, no problems with it, and we want our job to work as perfectly as possible, and we're just constantly anxious. But you can't keep it all together because you weren't meant to because those things weren't meant to be worshipped. read a great quote that says, Idols can't give people the relationship they want or need. To their gods, they had to follow and then receive acceptance. The true God accepts us, and then we follow. This is a massive fundamental difference. Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their nostrils. Those who make them become like them. You know why I like the scriptures? Mike was talking about why he believes it. Part of the reason I believe it is it makes sense of life. More than any other religion. Christianity and the Bible. I mean, the Bible says that. Those who make them become like them. That's so true. You are what you love. You're becoming that thing that you worship. If it's money, you're becoming greedy. If it's pleasure and passion, you can never get enough. So how do we confront it? Well, with the good news of the gospel. So, it would be easy to leave this sermon and just leave you disillusioned and discouraged. Well, I, yeah, guilty, man. I got all those idols. So what the heck do I do with it? You need the gospel. Now, some of us know that. And so this morning you just need to hear it and then you just keep applying it. And just keep, keep asking yourself, how do I overcome these idols? Well, Jesus Christ did. He confronted all of your idols. He took the sin that we deserve because of our worship of false idols upon himself. He gave you victory. Now, here's what it means. Satan still has power. He can still influence us, but it's, been, it's like mutiny on a ship. The captain hasn't been placed overboard. He still exists and he's there. And there's one who's taken his position in a mutinous way. And he has influence, but he has no authority. And on that ship of your heart where Satan is trying to influence you to do what he wants you to do, just as he did Adam and Eve, you don't have to say yes anymore. You can say no, because he has no authority. 
And so you choosing to worship your idols is like you banging your head against a wall. And Jesus looks at you and he says, you, don't, you know you don't have to do that anymore. There's a better way for you to live. But we're like, no, this, this is great. Like just blood flowing down. Like, I like this. It's like Israel in the Old Testament. They, they wanted to go back to Egypt and be slaves rather than live by faith and trusting God towards the promised land. And that's kind of what we do. Slavery's a little bit better. So we need to be reoriented to both the common grace and the saving grace of God. We need to know there is a source and an authority and one who created it all, just as Paul appeals to here. Why, men, why are you doing these things, he says? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. A lot of people ask, Jay, why'd you choose Genesis as the first series for Flat Rock? The reason I chose Genesis is I wanted to set a foundation. I wanted you to see that there is a source of life, that there is one true God, and that by him we redefine and set up our entire lives based upon our understanding and our worldview of how he views the world. And Paul is saying, listen, whether you've heard of Jesus or not, we've got to establish the fact there is a God. You need to ask your, then you need to ask yourself, well, what kind of God is he? He's not just one who rules from afar. He is a personal God. And I love that he says, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So he reveals himself in a common way to all people. So even the people who've never heard of God are without excuse because they're worshiping false gods. They're still living in sin. They're guilty of sin. They deserve hell. And the only way that they can be freed from that is the good news of the gospel. Jeremiah 14, 22, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain or can the heavens give showers? You know, this isn't a God we believe in who might do good to you if you do good to him, but a God who is good even when you don't deserve it and don't acknowledge him. That's what Paul's trying to say. You don't deserve this, but God has shown his love for you and he's given you life and rain and food, but he wants something even more. He wants to know you as a son or daughter. And like Paul, we have to know our audience well. So if we're going to go and be and make disciples, for our mission, we need to know our audience. We need to know their story. We need to know how to apply the gospel. We don't just need a shtick. There's not just one way to share it. Some people, we need to start with the common grace of God. Find that point of contact. And so the people's reaction is, one of deep insecurity and fear, and they take Paul. This is, one of, this is maybe the most remarkable scene in all of Acts, and I'll, I'll start to close with, with this. But, you know, they freak out. They turn against them. They take Paul out of the city, and they stone him. And now, next to crucifixion, stoning is about the most barbaric and awful way to kill someone other than maybe pulling their limbs apart. So imagine if what I was saying to you this morning was so deeply offensive that you just stood up and chucked whatever you could at me, and then I sunk behind the pulpit here, waited till it was over, and got back up and just kept preaching. Paul is hit with stones, lots of stones, to the point where most people would die. And you know the first thing he does after he gets stoned and regathers himself? He walks back into the city. Now, if it was me... 
Got enough. I did my job. Got him to move on. Maybe you have some more favor somewhere else. He moves back into the city. And then the next day, after being stoned, he walks 60 miles to the next city, or begins a 60-mile journey to the next city. That is remarkable. <laughs> that is, that's that's got to be miraculous. It doesn't tell us that's a miracle. I can't imagine how that's even possible. But I love his heart. And we should expect the same kind of hostility to the truth in the world that we live in. We should expect that when we share the good news of the gospel with people, it, sometimes it will be received very well. Sometimes it will scratch an itch and annoy every insecurity that person might have. That they realize, as you're sharing with them, I really am greedy. I really am a workaholic. I really do only care about acquiring things and my reputation and my relationship with my girlfriend. And all of these things start to be apparent to them. And they, 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 sometimes they'll flip out. And that's okay. But we need to be willing to speak boldly and winsomely. That's what Paul and Barnabas do. They don't, they don't berate these people. They don't say awful insults to these people. They don't turn around and run. They just keep preaching the good news of the gospel. And we learn that the way to show people they need Christ who doesn't believe what we believe or feel guilty about their idolatry is to confront them with the truth that they're enslaved to their idols. They need a new master. If you're going to tell someone anything, tell them that. Convince them of that. Of all the hostility they face, there was one man who was listening and responding in faith that we know of. This is pretty cool. I didn't realize this so I was studying this. Timothy. Paul and Timothy. He's, he's from Lystra. He's a Lystran. Um, and Timothy is sitting there hearing that, and Paul made a bunch of trips to Lystra, and eventually on another trip he comes back and he meets Timothy, and Timothy becomes his disciple and eventually a pastor and helps him you know, spread the gospel and start the church, which is pretty fascinating. And the good news of the gospel for Timothy and for us is that there is a God who rescues and liberates us from our false worship and enslaved hearts. So as you're sitting here and you're thinking, i got these big idols, man, I've been struggling with all these things, I don't even know where to start. Start with what Jesus did. He freed you. He gave you the ability to say no. They have power, but they do not have authority. You can say no by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What's ironic is that the people witnessing the healing of this crippled man were crippled themselves by their hardened and misled hearts. Their idols left them unable to respond to the gospel without supernatural help. So as we go to this table, ask yourselves, have you received that supernatural help? Do you trust by faith that Jesus has overcome your idols? If you do, this table is for you this morning. If you are still by your own power, if you're going to leave here and say, all right, I've got to start 12-step, and I've got to get an accountability partner, and I've got to get some blockers on my computer, and i just got to do all these things, and then I'll be fine. Those things are great, and they're helpful. They're really helpful. But you first and foremost need to know how much Jesus Christ loves you, that he was willing to die in your place where you deserve death for your sin, for your false worship, he was willing to die in your place so that you could be part of his family. Let's pray.